Amen. Good morning. Welcome to King's Cross. If it's your first time with us, my name is Clint. One of the elders of this church, we just want to welcome you. Glad that you're here. Whether you're a Christian, uh, excited about growing in Christ, or maybe you're not a Christian and you don't even know what you believe, but in a broken and dark world, you find yourself here. We pray you be uh, encouraged and look to Christ and even want you to know you're welcome and safe is a good place for you to be as you consider the claims of Christ, even this morning. Let me pray one more time and just ask for the Lord's help. Father, by your Spirit, help me be faithful. May this word be good to our souls in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't you wish you lived in a civilization where schools didn't get shot up? In a place where there were no gangs and no gang violence. In a society with no racism. A place where people did not murder other people. Where social media timelines weren't full of anger and hate and rage and division. A world where there'd be no abortion because there are always people willing to care for unborn babies and hurting families in need. Don't you wish we lived in a civilization where there are no affairs, no broken marriages, no pornography, no sex trafficking, no young boys and girls burdened with false definitions of beauty, worrying about do they measure up? A society where marriage was held in the highest degree of honor and operated for the flourishing of every man, woman, and child. How wonderful will it be if you didn't have to worry about your home being locked or your car being locked, that you could leave them unlocked and not worry anyone would break in or take anything from you. A society, to live in a society where there'd be no uh, forged checks, no taxes avoided, where the poor always get fed, where hard work is rewarded and where generosity is common where passwords aren't needed, where if you lose your wallet, it'll be returned to you with all of the money and credit cards in it. How fantastic would it be if we could live in a world where people could be trusted? The few court cases that would exist in this world always had reliable witnesses, and the attorneys serving would be attorneys that are pursuing truth and truth alone. People did not have to use phrases like, I'm serious, or for real, for real, or no cap, or I promise, or I'm not lying. (laughs) Like their yes would be yes, and their no would be no, and you could trust what they said to be true. Don't you wish we lived in a world where children obeyed parents? Listen, you got a bunch of young families in the room. That was the first one to get an amen. That's a lot of young families in the room. (laughs) Don't you wish you lived in a world where parents raised their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, where they cared for them and protected them and led to their flourishing? Don't you wish we lived in a world where all authorities could be trusted to pursue the best underneath their authority and where we could submit to and gladly honor authority? Can you imagine a society where people worked hard when they're supposed to work and rested hard when they're supposed to rest? A place where people didn't demand or get offended by the fact you did not respond to an email or a text message after hours. But instead, a place where people were jealous that everyone got appropriate rest physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. Can you imagine a society that all worshiped the same God? And not just any old God, but the one true God, the God who was just and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, the one true God who was all-powerful and all-knowing and ever-present, a society where there was no religious pluralism or confusion or arguments, but instead God himself was known and loved and worshipped. A community that worshipped the one true God 
in the way he calls them to worship, such that it was clear he was the real God. They really were his people, and his presence really was among them. They honored his name in all that they did. They represent him in all their relationships and dealings with one another and others. They're distinct from the rest of the world because of their love for God and their love for others, especially the love for the people of God. Friends, if you could snap your fingers right now and make the city of Greensboro like this, would you? And if so, listen, I got fingers snapping. <laughs> it was just an illustration. You were, it, was, it was rhetorical. <laughs> but if you could do that, and Greensboro really did turn into that kind of society, would not neighboring towns and cities look in and say, what's going on over there? Would not even those who say, I don't even believe in the same God or maybe even have the same moral or ethics as you, but I'm looking at this city and I'm looking at the uniqueness of this community and this society and I at least got to question what I believe and how I live. Would there not be people saying, I'll sell everything to move me and live in Greensboro because of that kind of community? Can you imagine that society, society existing in Greensboro? Now, if you've been with us in our study, surely you know the society I've been describing is the society God meant for Israel to become through obedience to the Ten Commandments. I've just walked through what a society who obeyed the Ten Commandments would look like and live like. But if you know your Bible, you know Israel failed again and again and again. She did not love the Lord, her God, with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength. She did not love others as herself. Instead, she was commonly running into pagan lands among false gods and, and, and uh, committing syncretism, syncing up, uh, following Yahweh and the ethics and morals of Yahweh with the ethics and morals of false gods and idols. And so therefore, we don't see that society, even today. We don't see that society in a geopolitical way. Why? Why, if all human beings long for this type of community, or at least a community with the majority of these elements, why do we not follow God's way? If that kind of society would be so good to live in, why don't we do it as human beings? Why is it we don't follow and live that way? Why? Nowhere on the planet can we find a society like that. Why? Because we all have sin-sick, idolatrous hearts that are exposed by the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The main point is we wrap our, up, wrap our study up on the Ten Commandments with the Ten Commandments. The main points were not to covet what God has given to others, but instead to find contentment in Christ and what he's given to us. We are not to covet what God has given to others, but instead to find contentment in Christ and what he's given to us. Only when this happens can we begin to create the kind of society we long for, or at least catch glimpses of it. We'll talk about that at the very end. But for right now, I want to deal with that bigger question. First, why do we not live the way we long to live? Because I can paint a picture of a society that everybody, uh, by and large, is going to say, again, with maybe some asterisks, and what do you mean by that, clarification points. But by and large, everybody's going to say, I'd like to live in that kind of place. Why don't we live that way as human beings? Again, because we have sin-sick hearts. We have hearts that naturally long for that which God has not given to us. That's what this final commandment addresses and exposes. Coveting. What is coveting? Coveting is desiring that which God has entrusted to someone else to be yours and not theirs. That's what it means to covet. God, I desire that which you've given to someone else to be mine and not theirs. Not just I want something like that, but I want that one. And in order to have that one, they can't have that one. That's what 
coveting is in the heart. It's not the act of desiring. Buddhism teaches nirvana is reached when we stop craving or having desires. That's not Christianity. Christianity doesn't say the desires necessarily are the problem or desiring itself is the problem. It's what you desire that's the problem. It's how you desire that's the problem. But desiring itself is not the problem. In fact, we're supposed to desire. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So it's not, again, we're not Buddhist. It's not, hey, stop wanting. It's, hey, that you're wanting the wrong things. It's you're wanting things that do not belong to you. Instead, they belong to someone else. And this is natural for a sinful heart. Christianity says your inward desires must be directed Godward and outwards towards other, others according to God's law. Only then will you find them satisfied, at least in part now, and fully in glory. Sin never satisfies our desires, nor does it create societies we long to live in. Giving in to sinful desires leads to destruction of individuals and of societies. So we need to understand that the law, the commandments aren't forbidding desire. They're reorienting them. They're redirecting them. They're telling them your desires are bent the wrong way, primarily in on yourself. Coveting is, is, is or the Ten Commandments are forbidding a desire to get that which belongs to someone else by sinning. Now again, to be clear, covet, coveting is not a spontaneous desire that caught you off guard. That's not what's being forbidden right here. Coveting is a desire that is entertained, fed, enjoyed, and willing to sin to satisfy further. Lust is sexual coveting. So merely a desire for sexual intimacy is not wrong. But to act on that desire sinfully, that's wrong. Coveting says, I want to act on this desire I have for sexual intimacy, and I want to act sinfully. That's coveting. Coveting is seeing a car that belongs to someone else. And deciding you want that car at their expense and to your benefit and with no regard on who or what God has to say about it. It is seeing someone else's circumstances and wishing you were in their place with no regard for the fact that that's their place according to the God who placed them there. It's to want them out of the blessing you see them in so that you can have it. Coveting is seeing someone else's wife and desiring to have her as your own with no regard for her husband nor for God's glory through honoring his sacred definition of marriage. Now I want to think for just a second about the inevitable relationship between coveting and idolatry. Coveting and idolatry. So Jesus summarized the law as what? Loving God, loving neighbor. If you do not love and worship the one true God, first commandment, then you will, second commandment, create an idol to worship. You are a worshiper. That's who you are at creating the image of God. You will worship. So if you do not worship the one true God, you will create idols to worship. Now the connection between those first two commandments, no other gods before me, do not make idols, graven images, don't do that. And then the 10th commandment is this. When you worship an idol, you will not love your neighbor as yourself. An idolatrous heart is inevitably a covetous heart. Covetousness is what idolatry against God in your heart looks like against your neighbor. So when you have idol in your heart, not worshiping God correctly, you will covet your neighbor. False worship of false gods leads to covetousness in the heart towards neighbor. Covetousness is the horizontal impact of vertical idolatry against God. It's idolatry rather than love directed outward. So idolatry in the heart, when you direct it outward, leads to covetousness in the heart. Let me illustrate what I mean by this. If you do not worship and love God, 
but instead worship and love sexual pleasure as your idol of choice. Then you'll be willing to covet your neighbor's wife. If you do not worship and love God, but instead worship and love stuff as your idol of choice, then you'll be willing to covet your neighbor's possessions. A house, servants, an ox, or donkey in ancient Israel, but a home, a career, relationships, a car, or some new gadget today. If you do not worship and love God, you'll be willing to covet what he's given to others such that rebellion against parents and all authority, murder, adultery, theft, and bearing false witness are all possible. Because an idolatrous heart is inevitably a covetous heart. Covetousness is idolatry directed outwards. The Apostle Paul makes this connection clear. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. Sinning against neighbor is always connected to sinning against God. And sinning against God is inevitably connected to sinning against neighbor. An out-of-order heart, an idolatrous heart, is not a heart that is a good neighbor. So we have to see that. There's a connection. If you get this out of order, you will inevitably get this out of order. You worship a false god here, you will not be the neighbor God has called you to be here. With the tenth commandment even here, also, we see why Jesus said lust was adultery in the heart and anger was murder in the heart. He's demonstrating with it, like, no, no, no. If you even understood and interpreted the Ten Commandments correctly, you understand that last commandment shows that obedience to the law is not merely external, it's internal. So Jesus is rightly interpreting the law in the, in the Sermon on the Mount when he makes these comparisons. Like, no, 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 you think you haven't committed adultery. If you look lustfully, you're an adulterer. You think you haven't murdered. If you have anger in your heart, you're a murderer. Why? Because idolatry and covetousness are connected. These form the beginning and end of the law, showing and demonstrating what God's standard is. So I'm going to give just a couple of evidences of covetousness in the human heart. How do you know you have covetousness or you are coveting? Well, number one, if you are dominated by discontentment. If you are dominated by discontentment, there's a direct relationship between covetousness and contentment. The more you covet other people's stuff or life, the more you'll be discontent with your own. Discontented hearts always have coveting eyes. Secondly, how do I know I see covetousness in my heart? If you're unable to celebrate the prosperity of others. There's a direct relationship between covetousness and celebrating others. The more you covet other people's stuff, their experiences, their gifts, their positions, the less you'll be able to celebrate when they enjoy those gifts and promotions or positions they receive. So if you find in your heart when somebody else gets something you wish you got, you can't celebrate for them, that's because there's covetousness in your heart. Your heart is coveting that which belongs to someone else. And this kind of heart, a heart full of idolatry and covetousness, destroys community. This kind of heart destroys societies and peoples and neighborhoods and lands and cultures. We'll never live in a world like I described at the beginning if we have covetous hearts. Notice how James connects idolatry, covetousness, and broken relationships specifically. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. There's idolatry language. Do you not know that friendship with the world was enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
We do not live the way we know we should live because we have covetous and idolatrous hearts. This is why we don't live that way. This is why I can describe a society, all of us be like, I wish I lived there, and we can't live that way because we have hearts full of idolatry and covetousness. So, which leads us to my second question that everybody should be wondering and asking, where can we get a new heart? Can we get a new, can we get a heart not full of idolatry and covetousness? Can I get a heart that actually loves God and loves people? That should be our question. Where can we get new hearts? Now, if you remember our first sermon in this series, which was uh, a long time ago now, I told you there are three uses of the law. Three uses of the law. Number one, to restrain evil in the world. So it's good that we have laws. We have to have laws in a broken world to restrain evil in the world. That's the first use of the law, according to the scriptures. The second use of the law is to be a mirror that shows us our sin and guilt. And has not this series through the Ten Commandments done that effectively? (laughs) A mirror that we realize, oh my goodness, I'm more sinful and guilty before a holy and righteous God than I first realized. And he's more holy and righteous than I first realized. There is a problem. The law shows us that sin and guilt. It's like a mirror on our hearts. You out there shaking your finger at everybody else and the law is like, time out, look at yourself. Stop shaking that finger at everybody else and look at yourself. That's what the law does. It exposes and reveals our hearts. The Apostle Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 7. I'm about to read a long passage of Scripture. But I want you to listen to him show how and demonstrate how the law is exposing the sinfulness of his own heart. And this relationship and this kind of back and forth how the law is a mirror to his own sin and guilt. He says, what shall we say then? The law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came in, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life, like that perfect community we talked about, proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous is good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? No, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members... Another law waging war against the law of my mind and making captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? So notice the law restrains evil in the world, but notice it's a mirror that shows us our guilt and sin. And leaves us saying, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this war with my sinful flesh that does not do the very things I want to do? Who would deliver me? Who would set me free? The third use of the law is the law guides us to Christ. The law is a tutor that guides us along the way, that shows us, hey, let me show you a mirror to your heart. Heart, Let you see your guilt and sin, and let me show you to another. 
Praise God, Paul doesn't stop at verse 24. He keeps going. Read verse 24 again and let's keep going. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Friends, remember the story of Scripture. Scripture, Israel fails and fails at being the covenant community of God that puts on display the glory of God by walking in the new life he called them to walk into. Again, so guilty of syncretism and saying, no, we'll take some of Yahweh, we'll take some of this. We'll see it in chapter 32 with the golden calf incident when we continue our study through Exodus. But God says, no, 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 I'm going to have my covenant people who fulfill this covenant. So therefore, God sent forth Jesus Christ, the true and better Israel, the true son of God. Where Israel failed, Christ comes and says, I will succeed. Where Israel disobeyed the command and the law, Christ says, I will succeed and obey the command and the law. And that's why Christ himself said, clearly proclaimed what he was doing in his life on earth regarding the law. Matthew 5, 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he said, I'm not abrogating the law. I'm not pushing the law to the side. I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to show you what it's like to live out obedience, perfect obedience in heart and in life to the law. And his baptism itself tipped his hand at how he had fulfilled the law and saved sinners who have broken the law. So he comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. And John the Baptist is like, you, time out. <laughs> like, you would come to me? Like, for me to baptize you? No way. You should baptize me. But what does Jesus say to him? Matthew tells us. Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for, to fulfill all righteousness. He said, no, no, i got to fulfill righteousness for sinners. So I need to be baptized. And what is baptism teaching and showing? I'm going to die for them the death they deserve. I'm going to go down into the watery judgment sinners who've broken the commands deserve. And then on the third day, I'm going to resurrect from that watery judgment, demonstrating I can save sinners. I can give them my righteous right. This is going to fulfill righteousness for sinners who look to me in faith. Why is that the case? Because he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he says, and you need to understand, you think these Pharisees are, like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. So he said, no, no, I've come to do all the work. I've come to fulfill it all. I've come to die the death and pay the penalty for all who would look to me in faith. And I've come to resurrect to demonstrate I am the Messiah who can save sinners who have broken the commands. Beloved, we are purchased by Christ. He bought us back with his very own blood. He redeemed us with his blood. His death, burial, and resurrection to save sinners was the greater exodus. Setting those captives free to walk in newness of life. All of exodus is pointing to this greater exodus. Christ fulfilled it all. All of this is but a shadow pointing to the substance that is Christ. Which is why Paul continues from Romans chapter 7, the flow of his argument, into the glory of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the thing of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You cannot perfectly submit to God's law apart from the work of Christ. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
You, however, Christian, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're not debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die, but by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear by whom you received, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Friends, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, his sending of the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart. He gives us his heart of righteousness. He says, look, you can never do it in your flesh. I'll fulfill it for you, uh, for you, and then I will transfer my righteous record to your account. Though you can't do it and you never will do it, I'll give it to you freely. And on Calvary, I'll take your wicked heart of stone, and I'll die the death that heart of stone deserves. I'll exchange my heart for yours, that you might now walk by my spirit in this life. Somebody look at your neighbor and say, what I couldn't do, God did. <laughs> you couldn't do it. God did do it. What the law weakened by the flesh could not do, God did. Christ has done this, and he's now given us his spirit. We, were, we had hearts of stone, but he gave us hearts of flesh. We were dead in sin, but God made us alive together with Christ. We, had, we were born with sinful, idolatrous, and covetous hearts, but through the work of the spirit, we've been born again. And friends, the, the Holy Spirit seals us and guarantees glory for us. When you become a Christian, you're sealed up with the Holy Spirit and guaranteed glory. That's Paul, Romans or Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, what I've just described, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you're headed for glory. And you're headed to glory where the life in that society that we described is normal. That place where you long to be is the place where you're going with Christ and his blood-bought people, redeemed by his grace, given his spirit, brought to glory with him and forever. The study of the Ten Commandments, again, has shown us all of our hearts are more sinful than we realized. We make idols out of any and everything. We need a savior. The law drives us to Jesus The glory of the gospel is that Jesus is enough. This is the glory of the gospel. So the law shows us our guilt, shows us our shame, is a mirror to us, and then points us to Christ, and we see, and he's sufficient. He fulfilled it. So if I'm in him and he's in me, I'm good. Sealed up by his spirit for glory. Non-Christian friend, repent of your sin and trust in Christ. You cannot do it by yourself. You need not do it by yourself. He's done it for you. Turn from trusting yourself and trusting Christ and Christ alone to save you and to declare you righteous, to seal you up with his spirit and to guide you into truth even with us. Receive the same spirit that God has given to those who have trusted in him that guarantees glory. Brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to notice though. He doesn't just save us and then immediately zap us out of this life to glory. So it's not you become a Christian 
Suddenly you're perfect and you just go to heaven. That's not what he does. Instead, he empowers us with his spirit and commissions us to make disciples of Jesus. Why? Why does he do it this way? Why does he leave us on earth rather than taking us directly to heaven upon conversion? Because God has always been about having a covenant people who will experience his redeeming love to glorify him among the nations. This is what he's always been about. It's what he was about with Israel. Then in Christ, the, the, the new and better Israel, he's now gathering the new covenant people of the church. This is what he's always been about, gathering a people redeemed by his grace, walking by his spirit according to his ways so that the watching world can say, man, if there's a society like that, I want in. If there's a society like that, tell me why y'all live like that. Tell me what's going on among you that would bring you together and cause you to live this kind of life. Thirdly and lastly, how can we live out this new covenant community? How can we live out this new covenant community? Again, the Bible teaches the new covenant community of Christ, purchased by his blood, sealed and empowered by his spirit, meant to proclaim his glory to the nations, is the church. This is the new covenant community he's gathered together. So how does this relate to, uh, to, to covetousness, and how does it summarize even what we've learned in the law? Well, friends, we need not covet because we have Christ. So I just, I just want to point out a couple things. If you're in Christ, this is how suddenly you're transformed now that he's fulfilled the law for you and filled you up with your spirit. Because he fulfilled the law, we can be content in Christ. Stuff doesn't satisfy. We know that. We're Christians. <laughs> Like, we're not looking to stuff to make us happy. We understand that doesn't work. Christ satisfies us. Christ in his ministry was approached by a man with a covetous heart. And look at the interaction and look what the Lord Jesus says. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He said to him, man, who made a, me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard uh, to them. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. So Jesus has this man approach him with a covetous heart saying, hey, I want my inheritance now. He says, first of all, why are you, like, our relationship and the fact you're coming to me is a problem about this. But then he looks to his disciples and said, wait a minute, y'all know better than this. You know life doesn't consist in the abundance of things. You know this. Let me tell you a little parable. It's a man who had stacks on stacks on stacks on stacks. He's like, I don't even know where to put them all. So I'm going to build up all this to have it. And, and, and the approach, the judge is like, no, no, this, this night, your soul's demanded of you. What's all those stacks going to do in glory? Nothing. What's it going to do for you? All the, the car you drove in here today, what's that going to do for you when you stand before the God of all? Uh, of all? Nothing. Stuff doesn't satisfy <laughs> So we can use it, we can receive it, but we're not looking to it to make us happy. We don't have to have covetous hearts because we're content in Christ. Christ does satisfy. So I can have whatever he gives me, I cannot have whatever he doesn't give me. Cool, as long as I got Jesus, I'm good. As long as I got him, I'm good forever. So if I'm good forever, I can be good right now. If I've got Christ and he's satisfied me eternally, what can I not handle right now? 
We have contentment in Christ. That's all that matters in the end. We need to rec- one author says we need to recognize that what God has provided is enough and be thankful for it. If we are truly satisfied by God's provision, we will not covet. And how can we be dissatisfied with God's provision considering his infinite wisdom and his love for us in Christ? If we want to be the kind of community that God means for us to be, if we want to be a powerful countercultural witness that people are willing to move and be a part of, then instead of whining about our lot in life and coveting the life God has given to others, let us, because of Christ, say with the psalmist, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Secondly, in application, because Christ fulfilled the law, we have an antidote to anxiety. So not only are we content in Christ, we have an antidote to anxiety. Literally, after Jesus tells this parable, what he does with this parable is like, hey, stuff doesn't satisfy. My disciples, that's not what, you don't live for stuff because it doesn't satisfy. You live for that which satisfies forever. Then immediately he turns to his disciples and addresses anxiety. He's such a good shepherd. He knows our anxious hearts. So sometimes it's materialism. And he's like, no, no, let me rebuke that. But then I understand you're anxious. Time out. Oh, listen, you're my people. So he turns. He said to his disciples, Luke 12, verse 22. Therefore, I tell you, in light of what I just said, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feed them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory is not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And do not seek what you're to eat, what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things with their false gods, but your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Brothers and sisters, God has got us. We need not be afraid. You need not worry. He will take care of you. Anxious brother or sister, let this be a balm to your weary soul today. The same God who sent the plagues and parted the seas is the same God who sent his son to live the life you can never live, to die the death you deserve, to raise on the third day. It's the same God who with the Father sent the Spirit to live within you. This God, this God, beloved, this God is your Father. Like He will take care of you. He loves you. You're his beloved. He says, fear not, little flock. He can take care of you. He loves to take care of you. He will take care of you. And often he'll do that through his new covenant people, the church. In a world crippled with anxiety and depression, if we want to be a countercultural witness, let us bring every anxious care to God in prayer. And let, it, let us bring it to one another. Let us, as Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And let us bear one another's burdens, even the burdens of the anxious, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. But third application I want you to hear is because he fulfilled the law, we can celebrate his generosity to others. So not only are we content in Christ, not only do we have the antidote to anxiety, but we can celebrate when others flourish and when others are prosperous. Instead of looking at what they have and coveting, we can look at what they have and celebrate. Look at God's grace to you. Look how our good Father's taking care of you, and I can celebrate your success and what God is doing in your life. I can celebrate the gifts. He's, I don't, I'm not competing with you. I'm celebrating God's grace to you, to me, to the whole body. This is what we do as the people of God. This happened the other night. I was with a Bible study with some guys, and we were talking about pastoral ministry. And our brother Jeffrey Irons was leading a discussion, and he was teaching us on a book that he had read. And he was asking such powerful and good questions. I, I, I disrupted the study because I leaned over to my friend. And was like, yo, he's a beast at this. Like, he's so gifted at asking good questions to teach. Like, I'm, I just don't have that gift. And so I stopped because everybody kind of was like, what, is, what, are you, what are you doing? I was like, my bad. Listen, Jeff, you're so good at this. Like God has given you a unique gift. And man, thank you. Thank you for using it to edify and build up this body. I could have been quiet and coveted. Like, Lord, why don't you give me that gift? I'm a pastor. It'd be really good to have that one. <laughs> Like, that'd be helpful, Lord. No, but, but because I have Christ, I can say, Lord, look at the gift you gave to him. Look how he's using it to love you and love other people. In the church, suddenly we can be like each other's biggest fans. Look at what God has given to each of us. And we can celebrate that together rather than competing. Contentment in Christ frees us to celebrate others. And lastly, because he fulfilled the law, we can confess our covetousness. This is our secret weapon in the church, y'all confession. We can confess our sin to one another. When the Spirit convicts you of covetousness or any other sin, confess your sin to God and to any and all whom it affects. We should be a community that regularly apologizes, repents, forgives, and reconciles. And as we do this, the Holy Spirit is conforming us into the image of Christ, transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And this gives outsiders a glimpse of glory. And we, in our life together in this new covenant community, catch a glimpse of that world, that society, that city that is to come that we all long for. And we shout in those moments, worthy, 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 another glimpse of glory we sing once more. As we see the Spirit of God working and sanctifying, maturing, growing and forming people to Christ who used to be dead and used to rebel against the law, suddenly becoming more like Jesus. It's like, no, no, look at this glimpse of glory we're getting. This is showing me there's a city to come. This is evidence of that city to come. We're imperfect, we're in process, we're going to have to confess, we're going to have to ask for forgiveness, we're going to have to forgive, we're going to have to reconcile, but in all of that we catch glimpses of glory. Imperfectly, but in process. King's Cross, by his transforming work, do you see the glimpses of it? Do you see people repenting of false worship and turning to the one true God alone, by Christ through the Spirit? Do you see people repenting of wrong worship and seeking to worship God as he's called according to his word? Do you see people repenting of bearing his name in vain and now seeking to bear witness in word and deed to the name of Christ? Do you see people repenting and confessing of working and even trusting in their own good works and instead now finding their Sabbath rest in Christ, in Christ alone? Do you see children repenting of disobedience and seeking to honor their parents? Parents repenting of worldly parenting and seeking to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Citizens seeking to figure out how to obey authority so long as we don't have to disobey God. Do you see people confessing murderous anger and seeking to love rather than hate and protect life rather than take it? 
Do you see those confessing adulterous lusts, seeking to put all sexual immorality to death and seeking to honor marriage according to God's good design? Do you see people repenting of taking and hoarding by growing in generosity? Do you see people repenting of deceiving and gossiping and slandering and increasingly speaking the truth in love? Do you see people, even this morning, repenting of covetousness by finding contentment in Christ as an antidote to anxiety such that we can celebrate the gifts he gives to others? This is God's plan to reach people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. New covenant communities that seek imperfectly but faithfully to bear witness to God and the world to come. Our primary aim isn't for Greensboro to be transformed. Our primary aim is to be outposts of the city to come. Our primary task is to be present and invite people in Greensboro and indeed to the end of the earth into these kingdom outposts called the church. To be a city set on a hill. To be salt and light in the midst of decay and darkness. We leave corporate worship and we launch out into a broken world with the hope of the gospel inviting them in. Invite people to worship next week for Easter Sunday. They might be willing to come. They might even enter the kingdom of God. This is why we plant churches. New covenant communities that are about that life. New covenant communities that will reach out. So where can we find contentment in a beautiful yet fallen world full of evil? In a world where a 28-year-old woman who identifies as a man would shoot and kill six innocent people, including three innocent children at a Christian school? We find contentment in Christ, in his new covenant community, where by his grace and the power of his spirit, we seek to live out his word and be who has called us to be in this broken world. Telling those who are lost and undone and exhausted, we found hope. We found him, we found his people, and we're headed to the world to come. Please come join us. Please come find grace, find forgiveness, find healing, find purpose, find joy, find hope, find Christ the King. Come get an imperfect but real glance of his glory among his people. Don't you want to be a part of a community like that? Even visiting Christians. we got another Connect class, April 21st and 22nd. We'll tell you more about what that means to be a part of this one. If not, be a part of a gospel preaching church somewhere. Be a part of that kind of community. Non-Christian, turn to Christ. Ask for help. We're more than happy to help because we've been so helped by Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father.